I'm so thankful for Matt's message last week. I got a chance to listen to it. Uh, I think that was Thursday morning uh, that I listened, was so blessed. And, and he gave us a great survey of the rest of the chapter. I would compare that to, it's kind of like Matt said, okay, everybody, we're in Chicago, we're flying to L.A. And so as we flew over vast uh, distances and spaces, he was pointing out the highlights and did just a great job of that overview. Um, if, I can, if I can use that uh, flight analogy, I'd like to land the plane in, in Salt Lake City today, one spot uh, that you all were, were skillfully uh, navigated uh, by and, or through and by last week. And that particular passage is Mark 22 through 30. And I know Matt even said in the course of that message, some of you would love for me to take about 10 minutes and, and explain a little further about the unpardonable sin, but he had a little different objective to get to. And so I really want to go back to that passage today, not just so that you'll have a good understanding of the unpardonable sin, but there are some things there that are, are just really beautiful and I think important for us at this particular point. Um, so we're going we're gonna to dive into that. You know, slander and defamation can get you in a lot of trouble. I know as freewheeling as our society seems to be today when it comes to just saying whatever they think, whatever comes into our minds, whether it be via social media or whether it be some kind of website or blog that you personally maintain or others, I mean, it just seems like anybody can say anything, but you actually can't. And there are laws both in this country and around the world that protect us from slander and defamation. Even our first lady filed a defamation suit recently, both in New York State and the United Kingdom, uh, against a particular publication that had published things that just were not true, and they settled for a very large sum of money. And she claimed, and I think justly so, that there were damages, and the court, uh, I think, would have upheld that, and I believe they settled before it was like jury trial. Uh, nonetheless, but um, $3 million resulted because they had said stuff they shouldn't have said, things that were untrue. And in Mark 3, Jesus is dealing with slander. Matt touched on this. There are actually two different accusations, aren't there, by way of review. His family has been so alarmed by things that are taking place that his family says of him, he's out of his mind. And it probably seemed like craziness. Here's Jesus performing miraculous healings, casting out demons. Thousands of people are now flocking to him. They don't even have time to eat, get a good night of rest. It is an insane scene. But that accusation has a different spirit and intent than the second one, and that is what we're going to dive in today. So I want you to look at Mark 3 and find verse 22 with me. And if you would like to use one of the copies of, of the Bible that... Gospel Opus provided, they're kind of scattered out. There are some book racks underneath every other seat, and you will find a copy of the Scripture. So whether you brought your own uh, or you want to borrow one of ours, I would encourage you to just look with me uh, at this portion of Scripture because we are going to uh, read through this, and I have it on the screen as well if you'd like to look there. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan 
has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. We could call this in the first place a blasphemous attack. This is not a careless statement in a moment of unguarded communication. No, it's a blasphemous attack on the ministry of both the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. One of the questions that surfaces in this topic of the unpardonable sin for all of us, is it something I could do or maybe have done at some point in the past? Because some of you remember being pretty profane when it came to God himself and saying stuff like, I don't believe that he is, or you can take that you know, message and whatever. And, I mean, you just said some really bad words connected to it. Well, I think it's important for us to look, first of all, at who is blaspheming Jesus. And then we're going to look, secondly, at the nature of their blasphemy. Look at verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus is in the Sea of Galilee area. Capernaum is his home, and he's there ministering. And this is quite a distance from Jerusalem, a number of miles. So this would have been a a planned journey. Uh, It's clear that they are there intentionally. And the scribes are among Israel's highest religious authorities, aren't they? I mean, these are the experts in the Old Testament law. These are the ones whose job it is to study the Word of God and, and at this particular time to study what the ancient rabbis had also said the Word of, God's me, Word of God means and then bring it to bear on the life of the people. We've already explored some of this in the course of our study of Mark's Gospel and come to see that it was not simply these men bringing the Old Testament truth to bear on the life of Israel, but they brought a pile of man-made traditions that had become a, a burden that no one could bear. I just want you to hang on to the fact, though, that these are men who are expert in the Old Testament prophecies. Expert. Vast portions of it they had committed to memory. They are also men who have witnessed the supernatural authority and power of Jesus. They are not stumbling into something where they suddenly see vast crowds of people and, and, and witness a couple of healings. They've been seeing this and hearing of this for quite some time. And so that brings us then to the second consideration, what is the nature of this blasphemy? And what I want you to see from the text would fall under three particular categories. First of all, it is the informed rejection of clear evidence. Now, now that's a, that's a pile of, of words even jammed into one little phrase here. The informed rejection. What informs them? The Old Testament Scriptures. They've been informed by prophecies like Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42, when God predicts that He will send His servant, He says, Behold, that is, look at my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Or Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is 
prophetic of Messiah, but these are words that apply to Jesus himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It's exactly what Jesus is doing by his preaching ministry. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what he's doing both in his preaching and his healing, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And what he's been doing both by his miraculous healings and those exorcisms and those powerful sermons is bringing spiritual and physical deliverance to Israel. And they know this is a supernatural work. They know it. It can't be explained in any other way. But here is the pickle therein. If they acknowledge the authority of his preaching, healing, and exorcisms as coming from God on high, then they will not only have to submit their hearts to him because he really is the Messiah, but that also means they're going to have to abandon a large portion of their doctrine and religious system that they've been promoting and living under. Furthermore, there's also connected this very real power of money and the monetary system. I mean, they have developed their religion and the worship uh, uh, that was being practiced both in Jerusalem, the capital city, and the outlying areas. I mean, it was a money-making machine. They stand to lose everything. So what do you do when your whole world begins to crack? And you realize that it's cracking because of this man. And you don't seem to be able to stop him from doing the miracles. And you don't seem to be able to quiet him in his message. Well, you begin by personally rejecting the evidence right in front of your face. And then you recast it, and that brings us to the second point. It's the intentional spread, the intentional spread of perverse accusations. Well, what are they accusing him of? Well, look at the text again. He is possessed by Beelzebul. In the Old Testament, Beelzebub would be an Old Testament term you would find, but it was a, a reference to a Canaanite god at one point, the Lord of Flies. Or the fly god. And some of you begin to think of a book you may have read at some point, The Lord of the Flies. Yeah, and the kind of chaos that was there would be representative of the kind of chaos that any false god brings into our world when we, when we worship or serve him or it or her. And so this term was in common use among the Jews in Christ's day as the title of Satan. And you know that because Jesus, he doesn't even go back to that term. He just acknowledges they're accusing him of of being under the influence of Satan and casting out Satan. So they're actually saying he's possessed by Satan. What a perversion of reality. Because who, and Matt noted this, who is actually anointing him and empowering him day by day? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the intentional spread of perverse accusations. Furthermore, they say he exercises the authority of Satan. Look at verse 22, the second part. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And I want you to notice the use of third-person pronouns. He is. They're not coming to him directly and saying, you are possessed by the devil. You are casting out 
demons by the power or authority of demons. No, this is another indicator. They're spreading it. And the way the terminology appears in the text, they are repeating this again and again and again and again. It is a wicked smear campaign. The intentional spread of perverse accusations. And then finally, it's the persistent slander of the true nature and power of Jesus. They were saying repeatedly, he's possessed. Verse 30, they were saying repeatedly, he has an unclean spirit. The Old Testament promises that Messiah would come forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. I read Isaiah uh, from Isaiah earlier, but think about it. The, the promise from God Almighty was that the Spirit of the Lord God would rest upon His Messiah. That's exactly what is taking place. So they're not only slandering the reputation of Jesus, they're slandering the presence of the Holy Spirit and His ministry, and they're slandering the prophetic word of God the Father from long ago. It is an absolute rejection of Trinitarian presence and, and revelation. And Mark had recorded for us in the first chapter, within the first 10 verses, that the Spirit of God anointed Jesus. God the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son. One author notes the use of the imperfect tense of the verb. We're getting pretty technical here. But but if we went back and we, we read it in the original text, because they were saying that he is possessed, implies repetition and a fixed attitude of mind. The tokens of callousness which brought the scribes to the brink of unforgivable blasphemy. So this blasphemy is an informed, intentional, persistent rejection and slander of the work of the Spirit and the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Do you, do you see how this is very different from a, from a moment of carelessness where you just kind of blurt out, God, I don't believe in you! Or even invoke an oath or a curse like Peter will do. We haven't gotten there yet. But when he denies Jesus, he actually invokes a heavenly curse on himself. May God curse me if I actually know this man. That's not the category we're talking about. It's a kind of blasphemy because it's a kind of slander. But this is of a different nature altogether. So now Jesus comes and gives a clear explanation. Look again at the text with me, verse 23. He called them to him, all right? They've been spreading it about, not confronting him directly, but now the Lord of all commands an audience. Says to these scribes, you come here, we're going to have a talk. And first of all, he, he notes the irrational nature of this accusation. It doesn't even make sense, does it? And we read this. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. I know there's a big game today. I don't even want to bring it up in one sense because this is so much more important. But can you imagine a scenario where the, the offense and defense for the same team took the field at the same time this afternoon, later today? And they're just battling it out. And, and we'd all tune in and say, what is this? This is the weirdest Super Bowl I've ever watched. 
So the New England offense and defense get out there and duke it out and don't move the ball either direction. And then they say, oh, we've tried. And then the Rams get out, offense and defense battling against each other. We'd, we'd be like tuning into America's Got Talent or something before long, wouldn't we? See, that doesn't even make sense. Exactly. It's a completely irrational accusation. I don't have time to really develop this, but it's also an important lesson for us as a church to remember regarding the essential nature of our unity that the Spirit gives. It's part of the reason that Paul said in Ephesians 4, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because whether it's Satan divided against himself, rendering his, his efforts ineffective, or even those who are on the side of right, if you start battling one another, in the context of your home, your business, your marriage, this church, we're done. We're just done. If Satan, Jesus goes on to say, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. It just doesn't make sense. You know, there are things that are presently being taught in our world about Jesus, his identity, his authority that are actually not consistent with what the Bible teaches? How could he be the creator of all and a created being at the same time? It doesn't make sense. He can't be. The Bible tells us that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. It becomes confusing but if you will listen to Jesus and you will listen to his word, he will clarify even those irrational accusations or irrational statements that are being made. Some of them I would even say in good faith because you know, regardless of what nation or background you're from, you know in your soul of souls you're a worshiper and you're going to find something or someone to worship. So Jesus notes that it's an irrational accusation but now look at verse 27, because where he takes this is to his irresistible power. He does it through a little parable, and he does this to not only correct this irrational accusation, but to make a powerful point about who he is and what he's doing. Look at verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So our question is, who's the strong man? Well, I don't think you have to read through this or stare at it for very long before you realize the strong man he's talking about is Satan. That's the one who's desperate to hang on to control in Galilee and Jerusalem and, and, and the world. But Jesus is telling the story in such a way to indicate that he's actually the one who has entered Satan's house, as it were, bound him up, and says, you know what? I'm plundering your goods. And the goods that Satan is chiefly interested in keeping under his control are people. You know why? Because people were created in the image of God. You have inherent value from that moment of conception until you breathe your last because you are an image bearer. And because Satan hates God and is in eternal rebellion against him, the, the highest part of his creation, of God's creation, is 
the point he wants to attack first and foremost. And if he can't kill and destroy, then he will enslave and imprison. And he doesn't care if he does it through demon possession or in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, through the highest form of religious zeal. They're both examples of satanic control. And Jesus has arrived and just knocked down the door and said, Satan, you've had my stuff long enough. I'm here to get what's mine. That would be a little different way of describing what happened to our brother Corbin. Jesus showed up and said, you're mine. Come to me. And he's been talking to some of you for a while and to this point, You've thought it's just between you and God. You know, you need to be aware that there's also a spiritual adversary who wants to keep you in darkness and slavery, and he does not want you to be released to Jesus. But Jesus stands before you and says, come to me. Come to me. We sang those beautiful and powerful lines of a mighty fortress is our God. And there's that particular line that speaks of Satan as our our adversary. On earth is not as equal. You and I are no match for the devil. But I, and I missed it because I was back drying off and, and changing. I love the line, we're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. And who is that man? Dost ask who that may be, Luther writes. Christ Jesus It is He, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of heavenly armies. He's a warrior. And He's telling these scribes, you think the devil dwells in me? It's Holy Spirit power, and I'm here to plunder that little kingdom of darkness and get what's mine. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He comes with irresistible power. One author writes, Only one who is stronger than he can enter into his realm, bind him, and plunder his goods. This Jesus has done. The expulsion of demons is nothing less than a forceful attack on the lordship of Satan. Jesus' ability to cast out demons means that one stronger than Satan has come to restrain his activity and to release the enslaved. The heart of Jesus' mission is to confront Satan and to crush him on all fields and in the fulfillment of his task. He is conscious of being the agent of irresistible power. I love that. I know that Jesus is meek and mild. There is no one more humble than him, but it is also fitting that he is described in other places in Scripture as the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is fierce and ferocious, and when he goes on the attack, no one stands before him and resists. So bring on your false accusations. In one sense, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. But now notice this. In the middle of this important confrontation with the scribes, a generous offer, an extravagant offer of forgiveness is being made in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, when he uses that little word truly, or some of your English versions have verily, verily, he is actually highlighting the fact that this is a solemn pronouncement. And there's going to be a sobering condemnation that comes in just a moment. But even before we get to that, just 
Just feel the weight of what Jesus is saying as he extends this generous offer. And look at the words and just marvel. He says, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. Would you go to 1 Timothy 1? I want to give you an example of what this looks like. Because some of you struggle. Uh, you, you say, okay, so maybe I haven't blasphemed Jesus or the Spirit of God, or God the Father in the way that the scribes did, but I've said some really, really bad stuff against him. Would there be any forgiveness in Jesus for me? And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul begins to, or 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, uh, Paul begins to actually describe his testimony. Verse 12, I'll just begin there, although on the screen I begin with verse 13. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his, his service Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let me pause right there. Do you see that little nuance of distinction? You'd miss it if you weren't thinking in terms of of what we've just seen in Mark 3, where it's the willful, intentional, repetitional rejection of God. Paul is actually saying... I knew a lot about the Bible, but I was really ignorant in my unbelief. But then he goes on to say, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And he's not... He's not exaggerating. He really believes when he looks on his past at all the self-righteousness and the religious zeal that led him not only to blaspheme God, but to murder Christians in the name of Jehovah. He looks on all that and says, I'm chief. I'm at the head of that line. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he breaks into this this chorus of, of praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's an example of what Jesus means when he says, all sins will be forgiven and all kinds of blasphemies. It is is a stunning, a stunning offer of forgiveness. And it's open to all of us. Some of you carried all kinds of guilt into this place today. Some of you have known Jesus Christ for a long time. Some of you have never entered into a personal relationship with him. But right now you're just feeling overwhelmed as if your soul has been flooded with all kinds of evil and wicked and rebellion and sin and disobedience to God. And you say, is there any forgiveness for me? And once again, Jesus stands before you and says, oh, I'll forgive it all if you come to me. All of it. That's such... Good, good news. The Old Testament prophet Micah closed out his book with these words, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of your inheritance? You do not retain your anger forever because you delight in steadfast love. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. Aren't you glad that God doesn't tread you under his feet? It's your iniquities. And you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Do you know, before we move to this last point in Mark 3, I, I want to remind you that in all of the Bible, there is no record of one person coming to God, coming to Christ, asking for the forgiveness of their sins and being refused. You can't find one. And I'll even throw this out. Some of you may be saying, what about Esau? Doesn't Hebrew say something about Esau sought for forgiveness or repentance, sought it with tears, but we'll talk about that afterwards. There's a different thing going on there, okay? He didn't actually come to God and say, please forgive me for my evil. So Jesus says all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. What sins are you in need of his forgiveness today? Small, great, thousands, 12. I put a number and quantity on it. Your sin is not greater than his grace. Well, that brings us to the last part of this passage, and this is what should sober all of us and cause us to quake a little bit. It's a sober warning by the Son of God. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Jesus is addressing a pattern of speaking slander against the Holy Spirit that is devoid of any faith or repentance. And when a person slanders the eternal God, not only by rejecting the truth in front of him or her, but also seeking to dissuade others from believing, because remember, that's what the scribes were doing. They have committed, according to Jesus, a sin that has eternal consequences. It's at this point that many of us take stock and, and sometimes even fear, worry, that we may have committed blasphemy against the Spirit of God, or as we call it, the unpardonable sin. But I found these words from a, a commentator named William Lane, very helpful. In this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. And it is the characteristic of a life from whatever point there was that first uh, emerging of rebellion all the way to the end. So the, so the unpardonable sin is not, you should not think of it as an event that happens. Like in the next 60 seconds, you could do it, and then God say, well, that, that's it. it. It's actually more characteristic of a life that's lived in blasphemy of a heart that continually says, God, I reject you, and furthermore, I don't want family or friends to be a part of this, and I'm gonna give everything I have to making sure these people don't believe in Jesus, don't follow him, reject the miracles, reject the exorcisms, reject the teaching. That's what the scribes were intent on doing. So you can see why the Lord would level such a sobering warning. The Lord does not use this term in this particular passage, but there are other places in the Gospels where he actually calls this crowd offspring of Satan. You brood of vipers. That's a literary allusion to the one great viper who first bit Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan. 
And so when Jesus says, you're a brood of vipers, he's saying, you are the sons of the devil. That's the irony in this passage, that sons of the devil accuse him of being filled with the devil. Does that show you one of the tactics of our great enemy? So twists and perverts truth, calls the good guys the bad guys, and calls the bad guys the heroes. Satan is a liar. He's a liar and a destroyer. And you know, even today, he wants some of you to stay right where you are because he would delight in nothing more than to see the destruction of your soul at the end of your life as you enter eternity. You know, if today you're worried that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, that's probably good evidence that you haven't. Because these guys, there's nothing in the text that indicates that they fell on their faces before Jesus in repentance and said, we are so sorry, we see the error of our ways, please have mercy on us. So the fact that you're worried about it is probably a good indicator you haven't done it. But I will say, if there's some kind of sin in your heart, don't, don't hold on to that any longer. Confess it, forsake it, be done with it, and, and get to Jesus. Just follow him. Just follow him. Now, what do we do with all this? First of all, as we seek to live out the word, one of the most important questions we should ask, whether you're reading the scriptures on your own, just privately, or you're sitting in a setting like this where it's being preached or taught, what does Jesus want you to believe? And just think of what we've encountered so far in Mark's gospel. Back in chapter one, he was revealed to us that he is the son of God. Not a son of, like, uh, among thousands and millions of others. He is the son, one-of-a-kind son, the only begotten son, as John says. Number two, that he's Lord. That means he's, he's in charge of everything. The end of chapter one, he's the Holy One of God. And remember, that's a, a demon who testifies of that. It's funny to me that they are liars and deceivers, but when they're in the presence of Jesus, they have to speak the truth about him. Chapter two, he's the Son of Man. That's a title, a very important title. I won't re-preach that at this moment, but it has to do, again, with his great lordship over all things, King of Eternity. And then here, again, as we see Jesus coming, he's preaching a gospel of the kingdom, isn't he? Repentance and faith. And we want you to believe that he is all of those things. And then secondly, what does Jesus want you to do? Well, he wants you to take what you, take what you believe and put it into practice. We need to be people who speak the truth about Jesus. We certainly don't want to be where the scribes are, blaspheming him. We don't even want to be carelessly saying stuff about him that's not true, kind of like his family. Oh, he, he's kind of out of his mind. Just give him time. We'll work through this. No, we want to be people who, who give as clear a statement, who, who testify to the truth of his life, his death, his resurrection, and all of his teachings so that everyone around us says, I think I know who Jesus is. Let's bow our heads and I want you to pray. Just respond to the word. And I suspect that the Holy Spirit is impressing a number of things on your heart right now. Or maybe there's just one thing. But start with what's clear to you. What, what does Jesus want from you right now? Maybe it's a step of faith. Maybe for the first time, even just to pick up Corbin's testimony again. Maybe for the first time in your life, like he did back in September, you need to acknowledge, I am a sinner and I'm in need of God's help or I'll perish. Do that right now.
If you're doing that, we would love to know that. And I'll, I'm going to be available after the service right down front here, kind of to the corner. Please come tell me. Just share that. I want to rejoice with you and even pray for you. Others of you just may be impressed how you've chosen, even though you've asked Jesus to save you, you've actually made some choices that have taken you back into a place of, of spiritual enslavement. Well, will you turn away from that today and return to Jesus? Call for his rescue? Because he has the power to bind the strong man and plunder that adversary's household. Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You are Lord of heavenly armies. And we believe that you, even now, in all places around the world, all kinds of communities and settings, but you right now are delivering captives. We've been praying for many, many days, months and years even, that you would do that work right here in our community. And, and there are so many strongholds of the evil one in this valley. But he is no match for you. And while we do not have the authority in and of ourselves to bind him, we plead that you would bind the strong man and that you would plunder his holdings, and that you would bring deliverance and life, forgiveness of sins and salvation. So how happy we are to know you, to live life under your name and authority. I pray for each person here that there would be a tender yielding to the Holy Spirit and that you would grant strength to those who are weak and weary, comfort to those who grieve and sorrow, that you would give joy to those who feel just overwhelmed and emptied out, peace to those who feel anxious. Lord God, do all of your good and gracious kingly work until we are perfect and in your presence, we look to you and say, be merciful. You are good and gracious, King. And for that, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.